hey, remember the Green New Deal? Well, you probably don't because so many people have been saying for so long it's dead on arrival. But today on Parts Pavilion, we talk about why reports of the Green New Deal's demise may be greatly exaggerated. Hello, and welcome back once again to Parts Per Billion, the environmental podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. When the Green New Deal was introduced in 2019, it didn't exactly take the world by storm. Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell forced a preliminary vote on it early last year, and back then it garnered precisely zero votes. Since then, the Green New Deal has been basically dormant. So given that, you'd be forgiven for thinking, like I did, that this huge legislative package full of measures that fight climate change and boost the clean energy industry was basically dead. But according to today's guest, environmental reporter Dean Scott, that's not how things work on Capitol Hill. Just because a bill doesn't have much or any momentum doesn't mean it can't have an impact on politics, sometimes a profound one. And in fact, we saw this just last night when Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey beat back a primary challenge, largely thanks to his foundational support of the, you guessed it, Green New Deal. We spoke to Dean this morning about the future of this environmental legislation, how it might fare if Democrats sweep this November's elections, and about where exactly the Green New Deal came from. So the Green New Deal uh, has its origins in the Sunrise Movement, which is, which is a big uh, progressive climate change group, young activists. Basically, it's a uh, a movement that's closely aligned with uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, it basically, it started with an idea of getting public officials, which largely translated into Democrats, to endorse something that what, what went far enough to actually address the challenge of climate change. Not, not, a, not an effort from activists to put something on the table that you know could be watered down or a, a place where both parties might end up inc- on incremental changes that address climate change and planetary warming around the margins, but something akin to Roosevelt's package of multiple pieces of legislation in the 1930s to, to address uh, a depression in the US economy. So it's been around for a couple years now and it has been tied repeatedly to primaries, but also races, uh, and even to the point where Republicans have tried to brand it as something that's a little too aggressive and, and too far left to, to ever be implemented in the United States. Right. I mean, and that, that was my perception of it, that it, it kind of sunk like a lead balloon, <laughs> you know, it's because I've heard Republicans constantly use this as sort of a cudgel against Democrats saying like, this is insane. They want to, you know, completely reshape our economy and ban fossil fuels altogether. And, um, but I get that we were talking about this yesterday, that, that it actually is not as irrelevant as I was thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Within the context of political races, we've seen uh, the Green New Deal be kind of important in a number of, uh, of races, particularly in Democratic primaries. What's become fascinating is this has gone in just a matter of a couple years from a, a platform that was derided as um, 
too aggressive, too far-reaching, trying to make the U.S. carbon neutral, making the U.S. completely reliant on clean energy, wind and solar in a matter of a, a decade, of, of providing clean energy jobs for millions. And the thinking was, well, where is all this money going to come from? And so I think part of what's happened is two things have happened that are, that are really key. One is the problems with the U.S. economy in this year in, re, in response to, to the pandemic and the stay-at-home orders and all that have really raised the question of how are you going to put tens of millions of people back to work who are unemployed? The other part where it's having a big impact is the Green New Deal is going to be back in 2021. And by that, I mean, it has pulled one whole political party, Democrats, to the left on climate change. And so where, as maybe a year or two ago, the thought was, if Democrats had the levers of power, if the Democrats hold the House and Senate and Joe Biden wins the White House, then both parties will try to come together, or at least Democrats will try to pick off enough Republicans and move something um, that can get done, which by its nature would be kind of uh, moderate on climate change. But I think what's going to happen is Democrats themselves are going to have a hard time uh, supporting something that's that incremental because the Green New Deal has been effective at pulling that party to the left. And those activists aren't going to be happy with something that just doesn't um, really address the fundamental causes of climate change. That was, that was something, we were talking about that yesterday, and it, and it really surprised me, but it makes a lot of sense that, um, you know, the Green New Deal is almost like a starting position in a negotiation. And it's so, it's, it was so radical that it sounds like Democrats, if and when they, you know, maybe get control of the government next year, possibly, depending on what happens with the elections, they can't really go that far back from their initial starting position. Is, is that essentially what's going on? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and as an example of this, roughly 100 um, House Democrats endorsed the Green New Deal. And in the last, I would say, year or so, they picked up the support of it was just over six uh, Democratic chairmen of different committees. Now, few people expect the House to flip Republican. That seems relatively solid that it would be still in the hands of Democrats. The difference is you have all those people, even in leadership positions, in a sense, in the House, endorsing the Green New Deal. But the difference would be in January is if they control the Senate and Joe Biden is in the White House, then the thing that they endorse is now something that they'll have to wrestle with. And to me, that that suggests, it, it doesn't suggest that the Green New Deal is going to become law, certainly anytime soon, but it is going to mean the the... The conversation is going to be pulled from both polar opposites, in a sense. One side, all the enthusiasm for doing something dramatic. The other side, um, on the far right of the Republican Party, the, the, real, the, the side of the party that contends that climate change is either not the existential challenge that a lot of scientists say it is, or feel that the, uh, it's too costly to go down this road, particularly if we were in a, in a recession. Um, that the, the we're going to have two ends of a barbell, essentially, and uh, we could have some teetering back and forth of what, what solutions or realistic solutions look mm. like. 
We're gonna take a quick break right now, but when we come back, we'll get into how Ed Markey used the Green New Deal to save his seat in Congress and why other threatened Democrats may not be able to replicate his strategy. Stay with us. So before we get into sort of how this is playing out at the ballot box, let's talk about what's actually in the package. Um, you know, it, this is a legislative package. It exists on paper. Can you give me like two or three different, um, you know, provisions that are in the Green New Deal that would maybe have the biggest uh, impact? Sure. The um, the biggest, you know, that the top line message of the Green New Deal is to get the U.S. at the forefront of cutting off its reliance on fossil fuels and to curb greenhouse gas emissions, but also um, to guarantee some jobs in the clean energy industries. In other words, that's the New Deal reference um, to Roosevelt's era, which is to put people back to work. And that second part about employing people doesn't get talked about as much with the Green New Deal, but it makes a, a really strong argument that we need a lot of uh, the, the kinds of, of jobs in the clean energy sector. So something I just thought of is that, you know, this, it, the Green New Deal is, would not be great for the fossil fuel industry. You know, it seems like this would be the government really, you know, for lack of a better word, putting its finger on the scales in, in terms of favoring the clean energy industry. As we know, as we've discussed in this podcast numerous times, uh, the fossil fuel prices are at record lows. Oil companies are going bankrupt left and right. Does the fossil fuel industry have the clout or the, the strength to fight something like this? Oh, it's interesting. The, the, you're seeing in the last couple of years, for example, big, um, big oil companies, Exxon, some of the others, have moved in many cases lower and lower or even off some of the top stock indexes by which we sort of measure who are the big movers and shakers in the U.S. economy. Oh, yeah. There, there was a time pre-iPhone, pre before the ascendancy of Apple, when Exxon was the most valuable company in the world. That was, that was not even 20 years ago. That's right. And, and keeping in mind that too many times when people think about this question of whether, whether fossil fuels are somehow losing clout, they focus maybe too often on big oil, the big oil and gas companies. Uh, but in many uh, states in the U.S., particularly in Oklahoma, Texas, these are the companies that are doing um, the drilling and in some cases even the refining uh, are, are, are small companies. And th that makes an argument to their elected officials that these are jobs that – are out there that would have to be replaced somehow and a, a, a port, an important industry to many of those states. So uh, that makes it challenging to do anything that sort of sidelines uh, the fossil fuel industries because in states like West Virginia, Wyoming, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, the energy sector, the fossil fuel sector is going to continue to have clout with those elected representatives. And you start picking off those states one by one, pretty soon you have a decent uh, number of, of folks on the side of the argument say, we can't go too far. Um, we have a lot of jobs to contend. And they're going to dig their heels in 
when it comes to doing anything that makes it you know even more difficult for fossil fuels to compete finally uh let's talk about the politics of all of this and and one of the reasons why i really wanted to talk to you today Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, uh, he had a primary challenge in uh, Joe Kennedy, the grandson of Robert Kennedy. Uh, earlier this summer, he was pretty far down in the polls, uh, and he reversed that uh, pretty dramatically. And one of the reasons why is because he received the endorsement from AOC and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, and sort of rebranded himself as an eco-warrior and cited his support of the Green New Deal uh, as a part of his environmental credentials. And as we found out last night, he uh, was victorious. He'll get to keep, uh, probably keep his Senate seat thanks to all of that. Uh, Dean, I have to imagine that, um, you know, other Democrats, especially veteran Democrats, are seeing that and are saying, that worked for him, maybe it'll work for me. Is that the case? Yeah, and I think w one thing that's important to, to, to remember is, of course, Ed Markey is, is heavily favored to win against his Republican opponent, Kevin O'Connor, in the general, right? So we're not talking about a race, let's say, in uh, – in a state like Virginia that's a little more purple to blue where it could hurt a candidate like Ed Markey to move or or to uh, accentuate his 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 progressive accomplishments and views right this th yeah this this is a state this is a state where the the primary is it that's the race that's right so basically if if Markey um, um, uh, defeated Kennedy as he did last night, then he pretty much is assumed to to win. So that's a, that's a little bit different than other states. But I will say this, Markey, it's it's not um, talked about as much as it should be. Is that Ed Markey had a uh, he basically had a playbook on climate change and a record on it. Has been going after fossil fuels, um, talking about what big oil is or isn't doing to help America in terms of. Of, of keeping prices down for consumers. It, when gas was back at $4 plus a gallon back in the 2007, 2010 era. Uh, so he's been on this issue for a long time. That's why his record on climate change, which dates back to him, really, uh, he was basically the co-author of the cap and trade bill in the House. He had that kind of critical uh, experience or record, which which was made it possible for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to work with him in the first place in co-authoring the Green New Deal. So when they you know they work on a sort of um, uh, big big rollout of the Green New Deal once AOC won um, two years ago. Uh, he was a natural person to go to in the Senate when she needed someone in the Senate. Uh, by her side. So there was a natural sort of fit there. The fascinating part for Markey is that he was able to use that AOC support. Ocasio-Cortez brought along with her the folks from the Sunrise Movement, the young people who want dramatic uh, changes on the climate front, where it was able to really point to them and say, look, the young people and the young people who want action on climate change, they support me not Joseph P. Kennedy. That's what made uh, it really possible, I think, in the end for him to reject um, what could have been a really strong um, effort by Kennedy. But it certainly was a race that um, really showed us 
sort of in a in a in a uh, in a, it was almost like a classroom exercise of how the Green New Deal can be used, at least for now, by by uh, folks running for office from the Democratic side to um, to push their themselves on the way to victory. That's it for today's episode of Parts Per Billion. If you want more environmental news, check out our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergenvironment.com. Today's episode of Parts Per Billion was produced by myself and Josh Block. Parts Per Billion was created by Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle. The music for today's episode is A Message by Jazar and Thug by Brian Lawrence Bennett. They were used under a Creative Commons license. Thanks for listening. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.